0: dj thomas and you're listening to frequency interrupted what's up i have astronaut abby here with me today how are you
1: i'm doing good thanks
0: uh, so i'm happy you finally got to come on Um, i wanted to kind of get um basically get to know you a little bit and share your story with everyone i know you got into what you're doing now at a really young age and you've done quite a bit since then so um let's just jump right into that
1: yeah, so to tell you a little bit about myself and a little bit about my story, I aspire to be an astronaut and I hope to be the first astronaut to walk on Mars. And like you said, I started I started down the path towards this dream at a pretty early age when I was about 3 or 4 years old. It's my first memory of wanting to become an astronaut and I've been working towards it ever since. So that's about two decades because I'm 23 now. And in that time I've been able to travel the world speaking to students and school groups and at conferences about space and about STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math. I've gotten a pilot's license, advanced um, training in scuba diving, parachuting. I've learned Russian and Mandarin Chinese. I have an undergraduate in biology and research experience doing field work in Siberia and also working in a um, NASA-funded Mars astrobiology research lab. And now I am the founder of a nonprofit called The Mars Generation, a new author of a book called Dream Big, How to Reach for Your Stars, and I'm currently working as a scientific researcher at Harvard Medical School. And I'm out of breath after all of that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> my brain hurts, like Ooh. you made me feel lazy. I thought I was busy. Oh my God, that's crazy. <laughs> Ooh. Well, um, all that being said, yeah, There's, and I'd love to talk about a little bit of all of that. What, um, How does this happen? How do you like someone? OK, so someone your age um, being so motivated, so driven and um, being in all these things. And I mean, literally everything that you just mentioned is, is a huge achievement for, you know, a normal everyday person. Um, what motivates? How does that happen?
1: I've always had this really strong drive and passion for space exploration, and as as I got older, I realized that not only was I really passionate about space exploration, but I'd learned to become passionate about STEM education as well, Mm -hmm. and making sure that it was equitable in the sense that there's a lot of kids out there who don't have access and don't have exposure and don't have support in STEM. And I I realized really quickly that I had the opportunity and the ability to share my experiences working towards towards this big goal and also um, to, to even go a little bit farther than that and to to do educational outreach work in STEM. And so that's something that, that I feel really driven towards now and that drives a lot of what I do. But as far as my, my, I, I, I tend to think of those things as separate categories and parts of my life. One of them is my educational outreach work and the other one is my my own dream, my actual um, life's passion, I guess you could say, of, of becoming an astronaut and going to Mars or yeah related but to me they're separate sets of work um and the the reason for that is because a lot of the stuff that I do to become an astronaut um is stuff that uh, relates like I said to, to the educational outreach yeah. work but isn't isn't the same um so as far as my own drive towards those things like learning languages becoming a pilot all of that um that's something that it's it's really hard to say where that kind of drive comes from. I was actually talking to my grandma a couple days ago because she called me and wanted to congratulate me on publishing my book recently. And I asked her, because I've been doing so many interviews lately about my new book, and I
0: yeah.
1: asked her, Grandma, do you remember me talking about this when I was a kid? And she says, Oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> you talking about this. And then the next words out of her mouth, I think, really encapsulate this question exactly. And she said, I had absolutely no doubt that you would pursue this and that you would be, um, successful at your, at pursuing your dreams as well, because you were the most driven, most dedicated, most serious (laughs) child about this, this dream that you had. And I think that that's something that as a, as a little kid I had, and as I got older, I really, um, I, I stuck to my guns on, uh, following through on this.
0: I mean, yeah, when we're younger, um, you know, you have those aspirations and dreams, you know, of what you may want to be, but typically they don't go any further than that. You know what I mean? So being that you pursued this and I feel like you've laid, laid the foundation for every piece that needs to happen moving, you know, move, and doing it at such a young age, too. So, like, um, th- what's interesting to me is, so, you know, the, the Mandarin and the Russian, um I'm assuming that's because that's something that's going to be needed in that, you know, moving forward into space exploration. And it's yeah, so
1: that's it's a really good question to ask. Like, how how the heck does uh, does learning foreign languages or other languages? How does that relate to space exploration? Yeah. And the answer for that is that up until recently, it was actually. Um, Not a requirement for astronauts, for American astronauts to learn Russian, but it was definitely encouraged. Because up until recently, between 2011, when the shuttle program ended, and now 2020, um, I suppose we're in 2021, but this happened in 2020 when we started sending uh, American astronauts to space from American soil again. For that period of about nine years, we were actually using the Russian Soyuz to launch astronauts to the International Space Station, which meant that every astronaut that went to space um, had to be able to train in Russia for a certain period of time mm-hmm. and then launch from Russia and be able to understand and communicate. And so if you didn't speak Russian, it wasn't an issue. NASA would definitely train you to a level where you weren't probably fluent, unless you're really a, a whiz at that, but were yeah. proficient for, for what you needed to do. Um, but it was definitely like a like a boon on your resume if you already spoke Russian and they didn't have to put in that extra time and, and effort to train you in Russian. So I figured early on, I'm just going to knock that one out. I'll, I'll learn Russian. And then at the same time, I thought to myself, like, What else do I think will be important in the future of space exploration? What types of partnerships and collaborations in space uh, do I I see happening between the United States and other countries? Mm -hmm. And the biggest one that I could think of at the time was... China. China is an upcoming player in a lot of industries and space exploration is not different. And so I I looked at that and I said, I can't guarantee that this will be helpful in the future, but it's such an interesting language, such an interesting culture, and it has the potential to be helpful for future cooperation. And so I uh, put that one on my my docket as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's something yeah, I mean, you're being proactive with those things, knowing that that's something that's going to have to be used. And as we grow as, you know, one world and we're all, you know, operating, you know, in space, I mean, we're going to have to be able to cohesively make those blend together. So you're already being proactive about it. It's pretty cool.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So what Um, now getting into the education? Well, first off, like so you're now working at Harvard as a scientist. Um, how does that happen?
1: Yeah, so it's pretty. Uh, it's it's a pretty exciting step to have taken in my career, and it's actually one that I graduated um, last year. I graduated back in twenty nineteen from Wellesley College mm-hmm. with a degree in biology, and I took a year before I entered my position at Harvard, where I'd been intending to travel through part of the year. I'd been planning a solo backpacking trip across Russia and China, Whoa. which <laughs> would have been so exciting. But as happened to many people, I had to scrap that because of the pandemic and um, to be a responsible global citizen and all that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But instead, I was able to spend about half that year working for a nonprofit in Wyoming that does place-based education using the beautiful night skies of Wyoming to teach people about astronomy and to tie in science and to really work on science literacy with the public. And then I also spent a lot of time that year um, working with my own nonprofit, the Mars Generation, on expanding and growing our programs and writing my book um, and then you know working on getting it published and all of that as well. Uh, and then I, I'd, I'd always planned, not always, but when I was in college, I'd planned and intended to take that gap year of sorts away from away from academia, away from science, because I'd wanted to really gain perspective on this this field that I was entering. Because a lot of times in science it has a tendency to be really introspective. Introspect- <laughs> it has a tendency to be really introspective. And sure. so you get scientists who, from the time that they're 17 or 18 years old, they go in for a science degree and then they just stay in school yeah. forever. And then they enter into academia and into research and all of this stuff. And I wanted to make sure that I was making the right choice for me of what I was doing with my life, what I was studying, and also gaining these kinds of life skills and um, maturity, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, a gap year was the perfect way to do that. And then entering back in, um, as far as ending up working at Harvard, that's one where I just got really lucky, that I was entering back into the science and research industry, and I was applying to places, and I found this lab that just was the perfect fit. Um, and I've been here a couple months now and it's been like, I can't be any happier to be working at at this lab, uh, than I am.
0: Well, so what are you, um, so what are you exactly doing there within, um, you know, studies and research and, you know, experiments and all that? What are you doing currently?
1: Yeah, so the lab that I work at is called the Jackson Lab. We study Uh immunology, molecular biology, and genetics. And in particular, one of the big focuses of our lab is looking at the human genome and looking at certain parts of the human genome that have been in the past considered to be not important or considered to be kind of like junk DNA, like DNA that's there and doesn't do anything. It doesn't code for genes. It doesn't really help us in any way. And my lab thinks that that's not true. And we think that there are answers to be found in those portions of the genome. And in particular, we think and hope that there are answers that relate to immunology. So the way that our bodies react in diseased states and the way that we're able to, um, to either fight off or succumb to various types of illnesses and ailments. And so, yeah, we're, we're taking a deep dive into the human genome.
0: I mean, that's probably perfect timing for that, too, you know, like um, we everything we're looking at with, you know, COVID-19 and, you know, um, whether it be people, you know, having, you know, weak immune systems or pre-existing health conditions or, you know, anything like that. It's it's it is, you know, important that someone's looking into the depths of genetic breakdowns.
1: Yeah. And starting to gain like a deeper understanding of those types of things. And absolutely. And know' was one of those things that um I always want my work to impact society in a meaningful way. And there's really no more meaningful work to be doing right now than immunology. So (laughs) it's perfect.
0: Well, what's, um, so what's the next step here? Because I mean, of course you've taken your downtime to capitalize on, you know, getting your word out there with the book and your foundation, which you've had for a while now. Um, what's the next step into becoming, you know, getting into NASA and, you know, looking at being the first person on Mars, like, and why is it that, um, how long has that been your goal? Because I know that's our goal as a, you know, society, basically, that's the next step, you know, we've done everything else. And that's the next reach. So what makes that, you know, align with what your goals are?
1: Yeah, so you asked, you've just asked me my favorite question, which is why Mars? Yeah. Um, How long? How long do we have for this podcast? Five hours. as (laughs) As long as you
0: want, let's do it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> That's a can of worms. But I'll start by answering the beginning of that question, which is what's, what's the next step for me? And especially what, does the, what, what do the future steps for me before I apply to the NASA Astronaut right Corps look like? Um, so I'm finishing out my, my time at the Jackson Lab over this next year. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I'm also going to be applying to graduate schools to do a PhD program that I'll hopefully be entering into next year. That's a really important part of becoming an astronaut um, with NASA because even though NASA doesn't require a PhD, they actually used to only require an undergraduate degree. They just recently changed that requirement to uh, be a minimum of a master's. But the reality of the matter is that the minimum requirements to become an astronaut are never what you'll actually become an astronaut with. If you look at, yeah, if you look at, you know, the every past class of astronauts, you'll find that the vast majority of them have advanced degrees and have, in some cases, multiple PhDs and huge spans of work experience and expertise and all of that. And so that's always been, to me, you know, one of those really big steps that I need to take before even applying to the astronaut corps is um, getting a PhD in in my field of research. Um, So during, uh, that's one big step that I'll be taking over the next couple years. uh, And over this year, actually, I'm also studying for my instrument rating and um, training for that, which is a part of flying. So I currently have a pilot's license. It's a private pilot's license. The next step after that, or at least what a lot of people would consider to be the logical next step is an instrument rating which allows you to fly in inclement weather and have more, more control and understanding. Um, so that's, that's one that I'm working on right now. Uh, so those are the, those are the two really big portions that I have ahead of me right now. And then, um, a PhD usually takes somewhere between four and six years. So that's about the minimum amount of time before I'd start applying to become an astronaut now since that wasn't enough talking i'll oh no no, yeah i mean that's i mean
0: we need the context there because you're looking at you know we're looking at probably realistically that long before this is a possibility to get there right
1: absolutely we are still we're still a ways out from putting humans on mars and um so it would be silly and, and this is something that i hope that if there are any young people out there who are listening who want to become astronauts that they hear this and know that it's it is a long road towards becoming an astronaut But that's okay because the most exciting parts of space exploration, or at least what I think is the most exciting, which is going to Mars, is still a ways ahead of us. And so there's time. There's time to go through the process of really um, getting ready to apply to the program. There's time for me and there's time for people even younger than me to, to follow this dream. Uh, As for why we should go to Mars, I think that there are three main reasons why we should go to Mars. And these are reasons that align really closely with my personal views and also why I think that it's part of our our culture right now. And it's something that a lot of people, not just in the United States, but around the world as a whole, have started to think about and to talk about and to, to become aware of really is this idea of putting humans on another planet and specifically Mars. Um, so these three reasons, the first one is because space exploration has a history, a long history of producing technologies and research and answers that actually benefit us here on Earth there's all kinds of things that space exploration have done you know the the most famous of those or the most well known might be tang the drink that came from space but the reality
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> is a funny one. i don't even look people my <laughs> age and younger probably don't even know what that is I, I'm, you know i know i know why you know what that
1: is. But. right cuz i'm a big space nerd <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> But so, yeah, so pe- I'm glad that people are starting to not know that one anymore because it's a ridiculous uh, example. Because the reality of spin off technologies from space exploration aren't, uh, you know, freeze dried astronaut ice cream or tang drink or anything like that. They're actually what we're doing right now this ability for you and I to be in different locations and to be discussing and chatting and sharing information with one another. That's a direct result of space exploration. There's all kinds of different technologies and um, and things in, in our houses, in our cars, in our devices, in our medical procedures, in the way that we grow crops and the way that we um, every, every part of our society, I would say, has been affected in a positive way by space exploration. But the way that those positive effects happen isn't just by like going into space and doing stuff. It's by challenging ourselves in space, by asking ourselves, what's the most difficult thing that we can do, but still have a reasonable chance of being successful at? Because when we, when we put ourselves into those really difficult conditions where we have to find answers, we have to innovate and discover in order to not only survive, but thrive. That's where you see really the jumps in technology and the jumps in understanding and in knowledge that come back down and benefit us here on Earth. And so right now, we're, you know, getting a little too comfortable, I think, in low Earth orbit. Of course. (laughs) We've been there forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's time to say, what's the next big challenge that we can do that will really continue to push our boundaries, really continue to create these these benefits here on Earth? And I think that the the most difficult thing that we could still reasonably do right now is put humans on Mars and bring them back. That's one huge reason.
0: Yeah. Another,
1: another reason is that it um, it inspires people. That space exploration, simply put, inspires people, and especially doing something as big as going to Mars. Yeah, um, I mean,
0: you have, um, I don't want to cut you off real quick, oh but no, you have, like you have you, we've been through decades where this hasn't been something that's been broadcasted as you know to the global citizens, you know, basically that this is something we're going to come together and do as a human race for the good of the Earth itself. <clears throat> this is something that we just haven't discussed lately. You know, with everything going on and what's we're worried about, what's going on here, there hasn't been something that has been sought after in a while.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you're saying that, you know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And for people, <clears throat> I like what you said a second ago when you were talking about just going to space just to go and do something, you know, with no importance. Like a lot of people, you know, from the ages of probably. I don't know, mid 30s down to, you know, teens that are, you know, looking into these things now really haven't seen the benefits that have been broken down of space exploration because we just haven't had, you know, a detrimental journey lately.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things where when you think about um, the the way that people in uh, probably our parents' generation, my parents yeah. are a little young for this, but my grandparents' generation right. were watching. They were they were 9 or 10 years old watching the Apollo mission launch, watching them land and walk on the moon. Yeah. And this wasn't just people in the United States. That was worldwide. This was worldwide. It was yeah. global. Yeah. And it was something that tied people together, reminded mm-hmm. them that we're all human. It it taught kids, it taught an entire generation of kids that no dream is too big, that anything is possible, and it really... um, To put it in kind of crass terms, it lured kids into STEM (laughs) as well, which is important. Mm. It inspired and excited kids in general, but it also brought up an entire generation of young people who were much more literate and much more engaged in STEM subjects and were able to build a backbone, a workforce that was able to take on all these new technologies and really run with them. And I think that that's the same kind of thing that we could see and that could happen from going to Mars from putting humans on Mars is is we're going to see that kind of lifting up of of everyone around the world.
0: It's extremely exciting for our generation because I feel like it's going to happen. So now talking about that, what do you think? Are we looking at like five years, 10 years? And what's that trip entail? How long um, versus, you know, just a trip to the moon, you know, per se, because that's really all we would have to put in perspective. Yeah. So can you answer those questions? What do you think?
1: Yeah, so definitely, I always have to preface these kinds of questions with saying, like, I can't tell the future, so of I can't course, give any specific yeah, answers, yeah. <laughs> but I can, I have, I've, I've been around this industry for a while, I have my, uh, m- you know, my finger in a lot of pots here, where I know a lot of people in different parts of the space industry, in different sectors and portions of it, um, so I, I'm able to say that I don't think we're there yet. We we're not five years out. In my opinion, we're not ten years out okay. either being humans on Mars. I think that somewhere in the twenty thirties is the earliest that we could like reasonably say like that's that's the earliest I'd be comfortable saying. You know, it it could happen then. Somewhere maybe mid twenty thirties, late twenty thirties, something in that decade. And the reason that I that I say this is because to go to Mars requires so much more than Just getting there and back, Um, getting there and back is already difficult enough. It's, It's really an achievement just to get a rocket, whether or not it's carrying humans to get any sort of payload from Earth to Mars and then to get it back. Like huge achievement. But you have to then take into account that not only do you need the transportation, you also need to be able to land properly on the surface to land much larger cargoes and payloads than we've ever landed before, which is a particular challenge on Mars. You need to be able to grow food And sustain astronauts, you need to have all these types of life support systems that are capable of a long journey. You need to have some sort of habitat on the surface if there's going to be an extended duration stay. That protection from radiation, you even need to, to think about how you're going to take care of astronauts' mental health. During a mission where they will be more separated from Earth than any person has ever been before. That's how, a really
0: what's the, what, time, what are we looking at time-wise? Like, if you were to map that out in, um, you know, days?
1: So, how long it would take to get uh, to and from? Yeah, so it's... Um, when Earth and Mars are optimally positioned in their orbits to be the the shortest distance between the two for for transit, it takes about six to eight months to get there. That's crazy. And then it would take the same to get back. It's crazy. It's incredibly long. And to put that into, as you asked for, to put that into um, like an understandable range based on the moon, it takes three days to get to the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. That's the farthest we've ever gone. (laughs) Yeah, that's the difference between doing a, a weekend trip at the cabin and accidentally <laughs> getting stuck in the Arctic for a year. Like, that's how insanely different these two ideas yeah. are. And a big part of what makes Mars like this crazy like out-there idea for humans to, to go visit isn't just how far it is to travel there, but how far it is for information to travel to Mars as well. Because you have to think that if, if you're on the moon, Let's say you're an astronaut and you're on the moon and you suddenly have a medical uh, emergency. Let's say that you have an emergency. It's medical in nature. You and your crewmates don't have the specific training to deal with this specific instance. You dial up NASA. Mm -hmm. You dial them up and say, get a cardiac surgeon on the phone with me. And they'll walk you through everything that you need to do to fix this problem or to have the best chance at fixing it if you're on Mars and you have a medical emergency or any other type of emergency happen, you can't just call back to Earth because it can take up to 40 minutes for a radio signal to get from Mars to Earth. And then you have this huge time lag. And so it's this idea of the first time that we've ever done something that requires independence from Earth. So Earth-independent travel, not just in materials and in in distance of, of transit, but also in distance of information because you have to be able to handle any problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have a. Um,
1: yeah,
0: you have a completely different atmosphere. You have um, no real time surveillance at that point, you know?
1: <laughs> so,
0: like, if something were to happen and it takes 40 minutes for you to get, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, you have to be able to deal
1: with it then and there yeah. with just the people, just the equipment that you have, just the expertise that you have, which which really does make it very different from anything that we've done before. And it's that's a big part of what um, makes it so worthwhile to do as well. Like we said, putting ourselves in these situations that require us to change the way that we do things. Yeah, I think that going to Mars is going to be our first step into Earth-independent travel. And once we do that, once we learn how to explore Mars... Um, with humans, then that's going to open up the rest of our solar system and, and who knows how much farther once we have these skills and these tools and abilities. It's I mean, kind yeah, of like it's, a crazy thought, no, right? I mean, <laughs>
0: but it's, it's, you know, we can fathom it now, you know? And, you know yeah. and, and if we're talking about 20 years from, well, you know, 10 years from now or 15 Somewhere
1: years from yeah. you know,
0: imagine what technology is okay. going to do in that time, you know? Elon yeah. Musk,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, well, and on, and on that subject, what's your um, what's your opinion on, um, you know, private space travel and what's happening with SpaceX and stuff like that? Do you are you um, into that at all? Do you pay attention to that stuff?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think that the privatization of the space industry is really an exciting thing to see happen. And mm-hmm. it's also an important thing it's an important step in space exploration to see happen for a couple reasons. One of them is that obviously the more players you have, the better because you start to have more ideas, you have more resources going into space exploration. You have resources and ideas coming from a different direction than what's been traditionally done before. And all of that adds up together to create things that that we never thought that we'd be able to do or that, that weren't even ideas such as um, Reusable rockets that you can land portions of them back yeah. and reuse them again. That's incredible. That's revolutionary. There are all kinds of um, you know things like that. Other ideas like inflatable um, spacecraft. Yeah. that will be able to house populations things like that 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 really have the chance to change the way that we do space exploration that's an important part of privatization another important part is increased access and opportunity to experience and participate in space exploration which is that the more private and public um industry that you have participating in space exploration the more opportunity you have for for the everyday joe the everyday person to be a part of it just like with air travel you know, the first couple airplanes it wasn't, it wasn't people like you and I who were going out and getting to fly on them versus nowadays. Air travel is such a common thing and such a common experience. Right. I think that we're looking at something like that with space exploration, that it's going to take a little bit longer than it did for air travel and for flight because it's magnitudes more difficult and magnitudes more dangerous. But eventually, I hope that we get to that point where it's something that is much more accessible to, to the general public.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was looking at something the other day where we're looking at, you know, possibly having private flights into space just there and back, you know, like a commercial flight.
1: You yeah. know, of course, yeah.
0: it's going to cost 20 times the price because of the price of fuel and the distance and all that. But still, just like you said, putting that perspective of that's what we were looking at, you know, 50 years ago with private, you know, aircraft travel.
1: So, yeah, and it used to be that, that, you know, it's it's never been quite as... At least from my perspective, it's never been quite as expensive as space exploration. But I, no,
0: no, yeah.
1: right now, space exploration really, um, for at least for uh, private flight for people who are private citizens who are traveling to space is so ex- incredibly yeah, expensive. Yeah. But I think that I think that we people in our generation, people who are growing up now, are going to see see that price come down a lot in their lifetimes, which is an exciting thought and idea.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be um, it's it's definitely interesting. There's a lot that I feel like is going to happen, and um, you're right at the front of it. You know, that's exciting.
1: Yeah, no, it's. I always tell people that uh, this is like this is the golden age to be alive. And if you, if you are interested in space exploration, sure, Apollo was cool, all of that, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Right now, this is the time to be alive to see history made.
0: No, I completely agree. Um, there's a, there's a lot of things happening. Well, what about um? So what about th- well, let's talk about the nonprofit first. So how did that come about? And, you know, I know it aligns with STEM and what you're passionate about, but how does it, um, you know, how does it work cohesively with what your mission is to do in life other than just, you know, provide education?
1: Yeah. So the, the Mars Generation nonprofit, I co-founded it about five years ago. I actually co-founded it with my mom. Awesome. <laughs> um, and uh, we started that when I was 18 years old. Um, The story leading up to the nonprofit is that from the age of about 13, I'd say, up until I was 18, I was doing a lot of science communication, and it wasn't something I ever intended to do. It was something that just kind of happened and snowballed, where when I was 13, uh, my mom helped me set up a Twitter account because I was working on a school project, an extracurricular project where I I wanted to get a primary source quote from an expert in space exploration to support it. And she said, "Oh, well, you should get on Twitter, and we'll start contacting people there." Yeah. And I, amazingly, I was able to. I was able to have a phone call with a um, uh, a um, life support systems engineer who worked on the International Space Station, who worked on the systems on the International oh, Space Station. And um, so I fulfilled that portion. But what happened that I didn't expect from that, which is, is that. When I went on Twitter and I started talking about these big dreams that I had of wanting to become an astronaut and wanting to go to Mars, I got this incredible outpouring of people who were really excited and interested in that. And it encouraged me to continue talking about my dream, to continue sharing it through social media, to do all of that. And eventually I I built up, I'm now at about um, roughly a million followers on social media who I get to share STEM with. And um, because of that, I was really inspired as a teenager to not just do science communication through social media and through content creation, but also to actually go into schools to talk to student groups um, about STEM and about how exciting space was and about all these opportunities in our future. Um, And then when I was 15, I partnered with an astronaut Uh, Luca Parmitano, who was going to the International Space Station for six months. And I partnered with him as his Earth liaison, um, is what we called it, (laughs) trying to share his experiences living and working in space with people here on Earth. And and especially trying to reach out to a demographic that I was really suited to reach out to, which was girls and young women, and share how exciting space exploration was. And so all of that over the years was all this experience I had doing um, STEM outreach and, and education. And when I turned 18 and I went away to college, my, my mom and I were talking about this and I had all this support from other people in various industries and specialties. Um, and someone mentioned to us, you should start a nonprofit. You should make this, this more official, make this something that, that carries forward as a legacy. Mm -hmm. And so we did, we started a nonprofit and we've now been able to do a lot of really great stuff with it. Um, One of the programs that we run through the Mars generation that I'm really incredibly proud of is our Space Camp Scholarship Program. And the reason that this one's so important to me is that when I was a teenager, when I was 13, I went to space camp for the first time. And um, I actually couldn't, my family couldn't afford it because I was raised by a single mom had two daughters and she was a high school teacher so yeah it was this thing yeah so (laughs) (laughs) you understand that she actually when she first heard about space camp someone told her about it when I was probably 10 or 11 years old and my mom chose not to tell me that space camp existed because she knew that we couldn't afford a thousand dollars for a week of camp (laughs) yeah and then I found out about it a couple years ago on my own and we ended up finding a nonprofit that helped give a partial so that I was able to go, which was this really cool experience to get to go and see rockets in person, to meet other kids who also loved space, all of that. Um, and it was really something that I credit as, especially during those teenage years, I think it's really easy for, for kids, but especially for girls to become discouraged, chasing after their dreams. And one of the primary ways to fight against that that discouragement and that dropping out of STEM subjects is to have experiences that reinforce how, how exciting and how important they are. that was one of those for me. Flash forward 10 years later, I'm 23. My mom and I founded this nonprofit. We've now sent more than 45 kids living at or below the poverty line to space camp on full scholarships. Yeah. Which is one of these things where I'm like, never thought that that would be my story to say that I went from, going to space camp on a scholarship to now paying it forward to such a magnitude.
0: That's amazing because you have, you were able to reach out to someone that was able to participate, which gave your, we gave what you were basically, basically what you were doing and gave it just a, more attention. Mm-hmm. You know, and then what we have now is we have a platforms to, to reach everyone. And it's just amazing that you're able to do that, you know? And Thank so you. that's
1: one of those incredible things about, um, about the, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just feel like it's such an important thing to mention that part of what makes my nonprofit so powerful, we do some physical stuff like the space camp scholarships Mm -hmm. and a couple other programs, but a lot of our work is actually digital. It's a lot of it goes on with creating content and creating opportunities and creating community and all of that digitally. Um, and it's, it's something that 20 years ago, you wouldn't be able to have this kind of, a, a thing happen you wouldn't be able to have a nonprofit that serves people around the entire world and now we do because of this incredible technology that once again ties back yeah. directly to space flight <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I mean it's 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 um it's definitely amazing too and you you mentioned you know focusing on what um, young women you know who may you know want some to do something you know and if this is one of their you know prime interests um this was a really um sexist and segregated you know, industry for a long time.
1: Absolutely. You know, so,
0: you know, a lot of people don't talk about it, but I mean, that's the truth, you know? So what you're doing, you know, to add to that is just another part of that movement, which is great.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate hearing that because it is it is the truth that there's a... a, a it's, it can be hard to talk about sometimes and to think about because especially in the United States, our space program is such a point of national pride for us. Mm-hmm. It's such a point of being able to look at it and say, like, we did that. How amazing was that? How incredible. But when you delve into it and when you dive into it, especially in the early years of the space yes. program, but sadly continuing even up until this day, mm-hmm. it's not been a prideful place for women and for women's representation there there are tons of examples throughout history of ways that women were really really barred from participating unreasonably so and and it was such a difficult field um and i i look at that and i say that we've come really far so far to this day and age but we still have a lot of distance to go For example, uh, aeronautics and aviation is a, you could say it's a a sibling field to space exploration. They're really strongly tied together. Only 5% of pilots in the United States are women.
0: That's insane. That's insane
1: number. And it shows that we have a lot of work left to do. And some of that work happens through representation and through women being willing and then also um, having the platform to share their stories in these fields. And so that's something that I've always been really passionate about is that like, I have a voice and I'm absolutely going to be loud in using it. <laughs> You're using
0: it. That's a great thing. I mean, you really are. And I think that's, that's the most exciting thing, you know, when you mention, I mean, all of it's crazy, exciting to me, but when you mention that, I'm like, well, that stands out to me as soon as you said that, you know, because that's something that it's not talked about, um, that needs to be talked about.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Um, so the book, let's talk about that for a second. What are you doing with that? Um, what's the name of it? Um, where can people find it? At? And you just you that you just published that what this last month?
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, I published it about two weeks ago. It came. Congratulations! Out. Thank you. And I know your reader or your uh, listeners can't actually see this, but some of them can. Know. We do video
0: too, so some of them can see it. But yeah.
1: Oh, okay, I would have. Um Made sure my lighting was better. Oh, you look great. You're good. (laughs) So here's the book. It's called Dream Big, How to Reach for Your Stars. I published it, like we said, just about two weeks ago with Mm -hmm. Penguin Random House Publishers. Um, And it's really, it's a guidebook that is intended for, for anyone really, but especially focused towards young people and young adults. Um, really teaching them how and, and leading them on how to realize what it is that they're passionate about, what their dreams are, and then how they can actually go about achieving those and being successful at achieving those dreams. And so it walks you through all the steps of, of how to do that. And I've had people ask me over the last couple of weeks with all these interviews I've been doing for this, I've had people ask me, well, why did you write it? And the answer for that is because I've had so many incredible experiences chasing after my dream over the last two decades. I've learned a lot from meeting people, from hearing their advice, from talking to people who have achieved insanely big dreams. And I've also had to learn some of the, some of the parts along my own dream the hard way. I've had to learn what it means to fail i've had to learn how to pick yourself back up after that i've had to learn how how to find mentors and so for some of these things i was lucky enough to get taught them and some of them i had to learn the hard way and I wanted to write a book that really put all of that in one place and made it so that hopefully those those tools and skills and lessons that I've learned are available to the next generation to be able to just hit the ground running right away with their own dreams so it's full of um, it's full of advice it's full of tools and skills it's full of fun anecdotes and Stories like the time that I uh, hung up on Buzz Aldrin because I thought he was a telemarketer. <laughs> um,
0: oh, God. Hold yeah, on. I, hold on. How, you got to tell me that story. Real <laughs> quick. Tell me that story, please. What happened?
1: That's a story that not a lot of people get to, or a, a phrase that not a lot of people can say. No, um,
0: no. First so, off, let's let everyone know who that is if they don't know who that is.
1: Right. So, Buzz Aldrin, the second person to walk on the moon. <laughs> um, so, When I was, I was probably 18 at the time, uh, and I'd founded this nonprofit a couple months earlier. I was in college, I was actually um, sitting in the library studying. And the word had gotten through the grapevine to Buzz Aldrin. He'd heard about me. He'd heard Mm -hmm. about the work that I'd been doing in um, science communication and outreach. He'd heard about the nonprofit. And he wanted to chat. He wanted to talk about, because he runs a foundation as well that's Mars-focused. And he's really involved in trying to inspire and excite the next generation in space. And so when he heard that there was this young person who was up and coming, doing the same thing, he was like, we should talk. And so he got my number from someone who knew someone who knew someone somehow through the grapevine. He got my phone number and he called me. And like I said, I was sitting in the library studying and I I got this call on my phone and I looked at it and I was like, who the hell is that? Like, hang (laughs) up. Like, I'm not going to answer that. People in our generation don't answer their phones if they nah, don't recognize the nah, number. If we don't know the
0: number yet. We're not gonna answer.
1: I hardly even answer my phone when I do recognize the number. <laughs> like the only person who I'm sure to answer for always is my grandmother. Yeah. Anyone else? It's like, oh, you might get. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's unknown number. I was like, there's no way. I hung up. I didn't think about it. I got another call. Um, it happened one or two more times. I kept, you know, just saying no. And then about twenty minutes later. I got a phone call from my mom and I answered this one and she's like yelling with half (laughs) exasperation and half excitement on the phone saying, I just heard from such and such that they gave your phone number to Buzz Aldrin and he's trying to call you and you won't answer your phone. And I'm there like, what?
0: It's
1: crazy. Is this a practical joke? It turns out (laughs) it wasn't a practical joke to make it worse. I walk in, I was late because I was on the phone with my mom talking about Buzz Aldrin. And she was saying like, you know, I'm setting up a time for you to talk to him tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. Like it'll happen. Don't worry. I'm like, okay, okay. I got to go though, because I have a class I have to be in. I walk into my class late and the professor's lecturing. And of course he looks at me and is like, well, you better have a good excuse for being (laughs) late to my class. And I'm standing there. I'm a first year in college. I'm all sheepish. And I'm like, very quietly. I'm like, I don't know if this counts as a good excuse, but I was, I was on the phone. Buzz Aldrin was trying to call me, and he, his jaw drops, and he turns to the rest of the class and can't just let me have this private moment. He says, who else here has ever talked to Buzz Aldrin on the phone? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's definitely not a made-up excuse.
1: <laughs> right, like you <laughs> like, have to oh, be really God, audacious. Not, yeah, there's no way. To walk yeah, in there and say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's hilarious. That's great. So
1: this, to bring it back um, to Dream Big, this book is filled yeah. with fun stories like that about silly, crazy, sometimes sometimes scary, sometimes funny experiences that I've had. It's filled with um, a lot of really fun activities, actually, that'll help the reader practice the skills rather than just reading about them and forgetting about them. Actually practicing the skills that I talk about so that they can integrate them into their toolkit to help them reach their dreams. And then I have to give a plug also that the artwork in the book is really amazing. I got to work with an artist on this who brought my, my words to life in a way that I, that I couldn't have imagined. So it's a really beautiful book, I think.
0: No, that's great. That's, I mean, and it's, you know, you've done so much in such a short amount of time and I feel like you're going to do a lot more. Um, So we've talked about all those things. I have a few questions. Okay. Life outside of the earth. What are your thoughts?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, I think absolutely. Um, so, my my field of study when I was in my undergraduate, the research I did was in astrobiology. Mm-hmm. So, specifically looking at the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Yeah. And so, I think that it's I think that it's almost a certainty. Obviously, I could be wrong, but I think it's very likely that life exists in some way, shape, or form. Um, off of Earth. Yeah. I think that where a lot of people get hung up on this and go, like, whoa, what? When I say that, is that I'm not necessarily talking about what you'd usually consider to be alien right. life. I'm not talking about uh, a, an alien the size of you or me with green right. skin and eight eyeballs and <laughs> tentacles. <laughs> I'm more so talking about something that's probably single cellular, something that's more similar to bacteria or possibly to viruses, yeah. things like that at a much um simpler level of biology.
0: Well, I mean it's something that, you know, I mean we've, you know, over the years this is what Hollywood does, you know, but it's like I you have. To, I estimate. mean there's 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 no <laughs> way that there's not, you know, single cell <laughs> organisms out there, you know, if you have another if you have other planets with atmospheres.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Know, there's got to
0: yeah. be some kind of life there. You know, to say that there is, it's like crazy to me from what we've done already, you know.
1: Absolutely. And and life is so much more um how to put it, Uh, I think they put it best in Jurassic Park, dare I quote that, life finds a way. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not just that it has to be the perfect planet in order to find life. There's actually um, possibility in a lot of ways for life to adapt to what seems like incredible and impossible circumstances. I actually, when I was doing my research in astrobiology, part of what I was studying and, and working on was a bacteria that was from Earth. So I'm not saying we found extraterrestrial life yet, but it was it was found here on Earth, but it has the ability to exist on the surface of Mars. Okay. So under the Martian surface conditions, which most, up until we found this, this organism, all almost all of the other life here on Earth that we knew of would not be able to survive that, namely because of the incredibly low atmospheric pressure that Mars has. And yet, there was this one kind of bacteria that was able to really thrive under those conditions. And so that makes you look at Mars and say, okay, so Mars, what about Venus? Yeah. What about so, what about Enceladus? What about all these other places within our own solar system that we might have previously ruled out or thought, you know, there's, there's no way that's not hospitable. That's uh, too difficult for life to survive there. Well, it turns out that maybe it is, but maybe it's not. And the only way to really... Discover that and, and answer that question is to to go check it out.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well, what are we looking at? Um, what are we looking at for like um, existing like atmosphere in Mars? Like, what is that constructed of?
1: So Mars's atmosphere is about one one hundredth of Earth's atmosphere. So okay. it's, it's much much less. It's about mm-hmm. um, five to ten uh, millibars in most places, and it's primarily composed of carbon dioxide. So here on Earth, we have an atmosphere that's nitrogen and oxygen with other trace gases. On Mars, you almost exclusively have carbon dioxide, and you have okay. almost no free oxygen floating around, which is a little bit of an issue for yeah. most life forms that we know. Um, but it turns out that, like I said, that's not—it's not a death sentence
0: um, for. I mean, most- to put it in a perspective, like, so you have a, um, say, so you have a um, something living in the ocean that's two 2000- thousand feet below sea level, you know, that doesn't use the same atmosphere. Like they just don't, they, they don't operate the same. It's not- Yeah, they don't
1: operate, they don't exist under right. the same.
0: It's not, we can't, we can't fathom it. it. It doesn't relate to how we, you know, breathe and, and even fish higher up in sea level, you know? So like, that would be a good comparison for people who may not understand that. So if you did have life on that planet, it would be something to compare to that, that exists in an that atmosphere that's not something we have of comparison.
1: Absolutely. That's a really, really good comparison to make, um, both for, for, for us to understand and think about how different life could be elsewhere in our solar system. And it's actually uh, one that a lot of astrobiological researchers are, there's there's a, a, an overlap, there's a linkage between marine biology, and especially deep sea marine biology and astrobiology, you'll find a lot of these people um, sometimes have expertise in both, or are studying very similar things, yeah. but from a different direction. and the reason is because it turns out that that the deep sea and especially trying to explore in the deep sea is very similar to trying to explore in outer space
0: yeah makes sense i mean it makes makes complete sense i mean i feel like that you know saying that would you know correlate there but um another thing i I saw an article today randomly literally right before we had this podcast um i don't know how but it popped up that supposedly the earth is spinning more now faster now than it has been is that true or is that just something that's
1: So it it is something that without having read the specific article, I can't really speak to the specifics of why they're saying that, but it is ever so slightly true that because of the way that the earth and the moon are um, connected to one another by, by gravitational forces Mm -hmm. that over time, over like huge astronomical periods of time and scales of time, the moon is slowing down. It's orbiting less, less quickly, um, and it's, uh, and on the flip side of that earth's rotation is speeding up a little bit. Okay. So they're dragging on each other in different ways. Um, then again, like I said, that might be what they're referring to. Right. It was in, it was in reference to some other <laughs> it was in
0: reference to having shorter days now you know based on based on earth spinning quicker you know i'm not sure if that you know what i didn't dive. i didn't have time to dive into it and you know fact check it or anything but i was like this is interesting because i'm about to talk about this let's bring it up you know what i mean
1: yeah so i think that that's what they were referring to is that um it has like that effect has ever so slightly shortened uh the the time span of a day and night cycle here on earth which is pretty cool yeah i mean
0: it makes sense too that's that's interesting so what um i know you work your brain out. You seem to be very intelligent, <laughs> and um, have you know have quite a bit of stamina up there. What about um, being training to be an astronaut is something else that takes a physical toll on your body as well. Um, what are what do you, what do you do? Are you doing things to you know? Are, do you work out? Do you you eat healthy? Like what do you, what's your regimen for that?
1: Absolutely. So that's that's one of the the parts that I take very seriously towards becoming an astronaut is this idea of health and the idea, especially that the the type of health that will actually benefit you in space isn't the kind of health that you can just pick up six months before you go to space and say, I'm going to start working out. I'm going to start eating better. Keto real quick. Yeah. Real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Because, because what it comes down to is that the type of health that's needed for space exploration is really, it's really deep. It's, it's a lot deeper than like surface level stuff. It's that you need strong bones. You need well-developed muscles, and you also need well-developed habits and mental patterns that allow you to physically take care of yourself because in space they have to exercise sometimes um, every single day they have to exercise for for sometimes two hours sometimes as much as four hours just to fight off to some extent the effects of microgravity on your bones and muscles um so personally I, i take that very seriously as something that i can do now to build up over this long period of time, to have the best shot at being healthy in space, um, I've I've done a lot of different types of stuff uh, for for exercise over the years. When I was in college, I was a um, an NCAA diver, so a springboard mm-hmm. diver. I was about to
0: bring that up. I thought I saw that, but I know that that's really like diving, and um, you know, your breathing is really like directly related to. It's interesting because we were talking about. See, you know, ocean stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's directly related sense. to, you know, the, the atmospheric change and stuff like
1: that. Yeah. So interestingly enough, um, the type it gets a little bit confusing when I mention this because I actually do two different kinds or did two different kinds of diving. Okay. One of them was scuba diving, and that's more related to training for microgravity and experiencing what the feelings of that are because of the neutral buoyancy of water. Right. And the other type of diving that I did was springboard diving, which is like jumping off of boards and doing mm-hmm. flips. Um, (laughs) and so that's not so much directly related to space exploration as it was a way that I stayed healthy and fit in college. Now that I'm out of college and I'm not a collegiate athlete anymore, I stay healthy through, um, I do a lot of hiking. I do a lot of running. So I run, um, between four and eight miles every, every day. Um, I do a lot of biking, stuff like that, just to, to really try and stay healthy and especially, especially now during the pandemic, I've been spending a lot of time trying to make sure to continue those kinds of healthy habits, even without the community aspect that a lot of us look for.
0: Yeah. What, uh, what kind of diet,
1: what kind of diet? Yeah. I eat a pretty, pretty normal diet. I don't have right. any major restrictions or like anything that I do intentionally. Um, I, I do try to avoid gluten. I think that that's, uh, not just because of fam, no, but- me too.
0: <laughs> me too. I completely agree. When I eat it, I feel like crap. You yeah. Know, I, I don't have for a long time. Like it, I'm a, yeah, I'm a supporter of that. No hey,
1: good. good. I'm glad <laughs> to hear that
0: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because
1: I, I don't have an official diagnosis towards any, anything like that, like an intolerance or anything, but like you, I just felt different when I don't yep. eat it. And so I, I try to avoid gluten. I try to, um, eat a relatively healthy diet, like mm-hmm. lots of fresh fruit and veggies and all that. Stay hydrated. But I, those, I'd say that those are the the biggest things. I I'm not crazy about it. I'm just like everyone else. I like a I like a good steak every now and then. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: I mean, the, yeah. But I just you know I wanted to I wanted to ask you those things because um I feel like that every single I want to talk about every single element of what it's going to take. You know because yeah. I, you seem to have it all laid out. You know, so it's like at this point you just got to continue your path.
1: That's the hope. That's the hope. And I'm glad that you're asking all of these questions about each and every portion of, yeah. of this dream and what it takes to hopefully reach this dream because the reality is that it, it's all-encompassing. It's not the kind of dream that you can have and you can just put 50% of no. yourself no. towards. You have no. to be all in. This is, long, like this. this is
0: a long road. And, um, you know, the standards have evolved. You know, the, um, what people used to have to do 50 years ago to become an astronaut, or 30 years ago, is, you know, not near as what it is now. You know, you're, you, you're, you're having to do way more yeah. intellectual work yeah. and, you know, strengthen your everything. <laughs> like,
1: Definitely. And I was actually just, um, for the, the launch of my book, I was really fortunate to be joined by astronaut Scott Kelly, who, for those listening who might not know who Scott Kelly is, he, um, was a NASA astronaut. He holds the record for having spent the most time in space of anyone. Oh and um he joined me for the launch of my book party to interview me and to to talk about it and one of the things that he said at the end was that when he was 23 he hadn't done any of the stuff <laughs> that i'd done and he told me i think you're on a great path towards yeah. just keep on keeping on and i agree with him that i am on hopefully a great path but i also think that times have changed it's a lot more difficult like you were saying it's yeah. a lot more difficult now okay. Well, I mean, the astronaut.
0: standards have been set you know more you know higher standards have been set what what's the youngest age do you know
1: i think i'm pretty sure that the youngest uh person to go to space was 27
0: okay.
1: um somewhere around there you make so. it there you make it there.
0: <laughs> but i, mean, I don't I have think, any
1: illusions i don't have any yeah. illusions but, i'm I mean, not shooting for like an age-based thing i just want to get there <laughs> i understand no, i
0: understand it and then, then again those standards were set that you know, weren't what they are now, then that, you know, the restrictions not the same, you know?
1: Yeah. It's very uh, different these days. And yeah. um, it, that said though, I feel, I feel really fortunate to, uh, I, I don't think I have it all figured out, but I think that I'm on a good, a good path towards <laughs> yeah. keeping on. Well, towards-
0: what do you, do? Yeah, I see, look, you seem to be very busy. Um, you have your, you know, head on this goal. You know what you're going to do. Uh, the trajectory is there. What do you do for fun in your spare time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because when, it, when you have a dream like this that is really a marathon, not right. a sprint, um, right. you, have to, you have to take time to enjoy life along the way as well. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I look at this idea of like work-life balance, not just between my day job at the lab, but also between everything else that I do. I try and find um, a balance with, with my normal life, you could say. Um, before before the pandemic, one of my greatest greatest um, hobbies and, and passions was dancing. So okay. I danced ballet, and I also danced okay. Latin dance, and uh, waltz, and blues, and all these different styles of like partner dance. Mm-hmm. And so multiple times a week, you'd find me out at some grungy bar. Dancing, <laughs> hey,
0: I mean, <laughs> which
1: <laughs> was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um. Now, obviously, that's not really a thing that's happening yeah. because we have to protect each other and, and whatnot. Um. But I've been spending a lot of time, uh, doing doing art. I do I paint and I I play violin and fiddle okay. and just things like that. Things that I uh, am happy to be reconnecting with at home during this time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're blowing my mind. You're too big.
1: <laughs> oh, and I sew my own clothing sometimes. That's um, cool. That's another. That's, well, that's another fun thing that I'm like, like, yeah.
0: Yeah, that brings it back right there. That's um something that's simple but yet very you know unique.
1: Yeah, and it's and really there's a, lot of, it's, there's a lot of art
0: to that too. That's cool. That's really cool.
1: Thank you. It's a fun. Um, it's a fun project. <laughs> I bet it is. So what? Um,
0: before we wrap up, is there anything that... Well, first off, best uh, who's the best demographic for your book? You, you know, you said younger women, but also I feel like it could be great for anyone.
1: Is Absolutely. That- and that's, that's one of the things that I've already been hearing from people who have picked it up and um, who, have, who have been reviewing it and talking about it is that I've heard from, from people of every age that they've loved it, that they've found it helpful, all of these things. Um, so I think that it's really appropriate for anyone of any age and any stage in their life. And that's one of the tenets in this book also is that, that you're never too too young to start dreaming and chasing mm-hmm. after a dream. And you're also never too old. There's no, there's no like path that you have to follow, yeah. but there are skills that you can learn that'll help you no matter where you are. So mm-hmm. it's really good for anyone. It is slightly more fo- focused towards a younger demographic. So it's especially, right. especially good for, for younger people.
0: Well, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I, um, so where do we get that at?
1: Yeah. So it is available anywhere that you would buy books. So that's, um, at most major bookstores, uh, it's available online and, and through places like Amazon, it's also available. And I would encourage everyone who's listening. If you want to pick up a copy, um, to, to call and ask your local indie bookshop, a lot of them awesome. are hearing it as well and to support local business and buying it. Heck yeah. I like it. Awesome. For sure. <laughs>
0: um, there are any, is there any advice you want to give anyone in it? Like, just like, we were mentioning, not necessarily the younger demographic, but anyone at all, because I feel like that you're someone, um, and then again, you like, it's crazy, because I think you're the first guest that's younger than me, <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy, so now I feel old, um, and um, it's, it's just motivating, and it's really exciting, so what is, um, what are some, you know, some kind of, you know, advice, or anything that you may, you know, have any kind of words of wisdom to anyone who may be whether it's facing challenges, um, making life decisions, which, you know, are its own thing in itself, you know, to just finding some kind of meaning or, you know, way to move forward.
1: Yeah, so I, the best piece of advice that I could give anyone, no matter if they're they're in the process of chasing after their own dream, or maybe they're facing a challenge or a difficulty in life, no matter no matter what's going on, the best piece of overarching advice I have is to to be ready to fail. And <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Isn't that such? It sounds like such uh, off the cuff. It sounds like such a bad thing to say, but that's. It might be rant now. I know, right? <laughs> no, because like it's the, inflammatory. You, I mean, you
0: if you haven't had an experience, it's just like the, the fifth place trophy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the participation award, Then we were younger, like if you haven't had a chance to lose, then you're not going to have the motivation to win. And it it doesn't have to be in competition, competitive sports or anything like that. It could be just with yourself.
1: Yeah, definitely. You
0: can only learn about yourself when you fail. If you don't fail, how do you know how to pick yourself up when you hit something? You know, it's
1: definitely the quickest way to learn and one sure. of the, I think one of the best ways to learn. And I also think that a lot of times we get caught up in this mindset and it, it's something that society tells us a lot. And so I don't blame anyone because I, I've struggled with this mindset all the time. I still struggle with it all the time. This idea that failure is, first off, that it's a personal reflection of you. Mm-hmm. And your value and your, your capability. And second off, that it is the end of the line, that it's the end of the road for, yeah. for your dream or for whatever whatever it is that you're doing and chasing. And the, the truth of the matter is that it is neither of those things. Failure happens no matter what. Failure happens. It happens to everyone at some point in time. To a lot of us, it happens more than once. Uh, it happens a lot. And the reality of the fact is that that's part of life. And it's not a reflection of you or your worth or your capability because life is going to throw you curveballs; It's going to throw you failures no matter how capable you are. And it's not the end of the the line for your dream either. It's actually a really important step, I think. I think that when I look back on my my sage 23 years. <laughs> um, see, I can make fun of my age as well. <laughs> when I look back on that, though, some, of the, some of the most important memories that I have are a failure. And I look at them and I say that that really hurt at the time. That was really hard. It felt really hard. But it actually propelled me further towards my dream than I would have been if I hadn't failed in the first place yeah. or if I hadn't failed at all. And it ended up being something that that really positively impacted my ability to to get closer to this dream of space flight
0: i mean i think it's amazing like it what what um excites me about you is that it's it's very evident now at this point that this has been your dream it wasn't a parent it wasn't you know someone that pushing you to do something you weren't excited about which happens a lot with people you know growing up um this is something you pursued you've been motivated to do it sounds like you've done more than most people have done in a lifetime in 23 years, which is extremely exciting as well. So everything that you're saying has so much you know, value to it because you've already done all these things and there's so much more to do. So it's just really exciting. Thank
1: you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I really do. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, share, share my story and everything with, with you and with your audience today.
0: Yeah. That's I'm excited future. about it. What, um, so social platforms, uh, Twitter, Instagram, what's your, uh, what's your handle on Instagram?
1: Uh, astronaut Abby official. Okay. And, and so you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter as astronaut Abby. I'm on Facebook as astronaut Abby. I'm on TikTok. I guess as what as astronaut Abby, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on YouTube as astronaut Abby. Uh, and then the other ones that I would throw out there as well are that you can follow my nonprofit, on all of those same social media channels as the Mars generation. And I would definitely encourage everyone to take a look at that.
0: Thanks so much for coming on. And everyone, please subscribe to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.